Good evening, and welcome to a very spooky episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. Brandon and I wanted to do something a little extra special for the spooky season, so we brought on our friend Gabriel Perez as a guest host so that we could talk about TSR's second edition Mask of the Red Death box set. It is a... 140 page book brandon something like that it's old it's from the classic era where stuff came in boxes it's fun so we're going to be talking about gothic horror and ttrpgs we're going to be talking about this adventure in particular it should be a good time and if you really want to support spooky season support us on patreon patreon.com slash goblin scrawlers now let's get into the episode Hi, everybody. I'm Josh at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. And I'm Brandon at Way of Brandalore on Twitter. And who is this we have with us? <laughs> and I'm Gabriel at Amethyst Audiomancer on not Twitter. <laughs> Instagram. Gotcha. Just Google Amethyst if you need to know how to spell it. It's true. It is correctly spelled. Yeah, welcome to a special off-cycle episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast, mainly because I don't know how to read a calendar and realized if we wanted to do a Halloween episode, we would either have to do it uh, this week or wait until after Halloween was over. <laughs> so we're meeting at the spookiest time of the day, noon on a Saturday, to record this in time for Monday. It's the most spookiest time of the year. But uh, we... We brought Gabe on because he is kind of the Goblins and Growlers uh, horror expert. So we're going to talk about uh, TSR's sort of kind of Ravenloft box set that came out in 94, um, Mask of the Red Death, which is set sort of on Gothic Earth. Um, <laughs> One I bought of my this... favorite settings ever. <laughs> yeah. Just, I love that, <laughs> like the the how on point it, it, it does not mind being. Like, where is this? It's Earth, but not just any Earth. <laughs> This is gothic earth, y'all, in yeah. case you were yeah, wondering. One, one of my favorite things is one in, in the rules for this. It's like, you can only be humans. <laughs> Other stuff is allowed. Elves can show up, but you can only be humans. Yes. But uh, I bought this back in 2000 when I was a freshman in college. And I was doing a lot of I was getting a lot of stuff on eBay at the time, especially like D&D stuff, because I was building up my second edition collection, because that's what we played back then. That was the style at the time. <laughs> and so I ordered this on eBay. Uh, it is I think I paid maybe like thirty dollars for it. Uh, it is one of the classic old school TSR Advanced Dungeons and Dragons box sets comes in a box has several books in it, a map and a poster and everything. It's really cool. And I started leafing back through it last week, knowing that we were going to talk about this. And I found a fun piece of archaeology in it. When I lived in the dorms, I lived on the 13th floor of a tower and we just had little mailboxes. So when it arrived, there was a slip that was put in my mailbox that was like, hey, come to the front desk because we have a package for you. And apparently I used it as a bookmark and it's dated September 30th, 2000. Ooh. Yes. I love that. <laughs> I love that. That, cause that, that. that like turns your adventure into an adventure. Mm -hmm. You had to go on, you had to go on a fetch quest to collect your adventure. And this box has followed me around many moves, many states. 
and it's still actually in super good condition. There's um, I, I encourage anybody to look it up. You know, obviously, if you can find a copy to purchase, find a copy to purchase like uh, on eBay or some other secondary seller. But, you know, if you Google around, you can find what we're talking about just to get an idea of it. But it comes with uh, like a big hundred plus page book. That's a guide to Gothic Earth that basically spells out the differences of how you're supposed to run the game in this setting versus a traditional high fantasy setting. And then it comes with three um, essentially module slash adventure books that come with it. I have two of them. I have Red Jack and the Red Tide. I don't know where the third one is. It is possible that at the time I bought it, it only had the two in there, but I don't know for sure. It has a Ravenloft poster inside it that is like 18 by 24. And then it has a map of Gothic Earth that is also like 18 by 24 that's folded up. So it's it's like uh, it's like the Forgotten Realms box set, only maybe just a little bit smaller because there's like one fewer book and a couple fewer maps. But it's really it's really cool. It's really cool. And it's like it's in such good condition for something from 1994. It looks uh, like just from everything that I've seen, like looking through the, the book and the content of this box set, um, I really enjoyed like seeing the box sets and that that mm-hmm. thing from like AD and D and how full they were, how full of like you know, a, a adventures and fun, and it, it felt so cool to like come home with a box set type of thing. Um, yeah, I'd love to see a return to that possibly in the future, but we'll you know, you know, yeah, that's my kind of back in my day thing about tabletop role playing, like. It just I don't know. There's just something a little bit more magical to me about having the box with all the books in it rather like it just it just feels more, I don't know, like a ritual or something like that, rather than just opening the Curse of Strahd book. I will say that actually just reminded me there is uh, the uh, Curse of Strahd revamped edition. The Beetle and Grimm, like um, super expensive. edition. Yeah, it's like a giant coffin shaped box, but it has mm-hmm. similar to like the box that you have type of thing. It has like the 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 floppy paperback version of the book and uh, a bunch of like little handouts and inserts and cutouts and spin certs. And would you guys care to guess what the manufacturer's suggested retail price for this Mask of the Red Death and Other Tales campaign expansion for Ravenloft cost in the box set. $35.99. I was thinking more in the realm of 50. In the United States of America, the manufacturer's suggested retail price for this box was $25. What? Well, we need to do some inflation calculation on that, but um, Yeah, still though, that's that's pretty sweet. Uh, I I wasn't yeah. too off with my uh, what I thought was a ridiculous guess of 35. Well, here's here's the thing that messes me up on that. That's 95, right? 94. So Super Nintendo was already a thing, mm-hmm. right? Super yep. Nintendo cartridges were 60 bucks. Super Nintendo cartridges sometimes were $70, depending on which Super Nintendo cartridge you was buying. Exactly. So because dad because dad wouldn't buy Chrono Trigger for me at Toys R Us because it was 70 bucks. <laughs> yeah. So you Probably can get fair. an entire Mask of the Red Death box set with poster three separate books like it is a ludicrous amount of content for almost half like just under half the price of a super nintendo cartridge do you want to know how much 25 dollars is in today's money yes it's gonna hurt me i think it's like 75 bucks isn't it gabe do you have a guess uh 50. according to the inflation calculator that i found it is forty six dollars and twenty seven cents. Oh, so it's still it's still cheaper than buying 
a hardback book from Wizards of the Coast in most cases. It's true. Yeah. Although I will say scrolling through here, uh, Wizards is hiring some very significantly more advanced artists these days. Like these these pieces of art are good, but man, the art that Wizards has now is like, ah, oh, beautiful. Yeah. And the, the bindings are all hardbacks and all that other stuff. And well, yeah, it just it's my nostalgia. It's my nostalgia talking. No, I, I will think... say, you know, if you were to hop onto the Goblins and Growlers uh, uh, Patreon, and uh, snag some of those like one page dungeon compendiums and stuff like that. Just imagine how many adventures you can get for a price point that's still going to be lower than a modern AAA game. Gabe, I think you have a monorail to sell us too. You're going to tell us how Shelbyville and New Haverbrook are really happy with theirs. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Goblin Scrawlers. This is uh, a little less on the spooky side, but it's also something that was in the bottom of the box. Um, it's a uh, a flyer for the RPG network. The Role Playing Game Association Network is a worldwide organization of gaming fans dedicated to excellence in role playing games. If you're looking for gamers who share your interests, join the RPGA network. It was created just for you. And it's essentially like a magazine that you get every month. Because remember, this is all like pre internet. Uh, so, like, yeah, it was like I feel like Dungeon this... Magazine and Dragon Magazine. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Polyhedron oh. News Zine. Um, the, uh, the form for it is pristine. I almost want to enclose a check for $25 and send it somewhere and see what happens. <laughs> but I feel like if this came out maybe like three or four years later, it would have been for like an ad for like their Usenet group or something like that mm -hmm. or the AOL chat room. Oh, my God. It. AOL chat rooms. I haven't thought of those in so long. Yeah. But anyway, I can we wanted hear to the talk pigeon about notification this. now. <laughs> We wanted to talk about this because uh, we are coming up on Halloween here in a couple of days. And this is. This isn't necessarily a horror title, I would, you know, because gothic horror to me and Gabe, you know, you feel free to step in on this sort of operates in a much more subtle realm um, than that kind of thing. Yeah. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I, I would I would say like gothic horror often is uh, characterized by sort of being the more romancy version of horror, uh, like generally in horror and like if, if you have like folk horror or cosmic horror, there isn't a whole lot of falling in love with a monster or there isn't a whole lot of. Uh, you know, understanding the monster's tragic backstory type of thing or that that the humanizing of these elements, um, even in like slasher horror where the monster is a person, usually uh, it's it's still more focused on the actual like terror of the situation, while gothic horror is usually focused more on like the dread and the the, the, the creeping understanding of what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. often like, you know, losing yourself to whatever the horror is. That's why I think gothic horror is, is the genre of horror for people who love horror, because when you love horror, gothic horror is all about loving horror. Gabe, did you ever watch, um, I know you're probably familiar with the movie, the Dark Shadows movie that came out a few years ago with Johnny Depp. Mm -hmm. Did you ever watch the series upon which it was based? I did watch some of the series, yeah. Yeah, I was a huge fan of that uh, back in the 90s. My mom was a fan of it back in like the, the 70s when she was a kid. And when I was a kid in the 90s, um, 
it was being rerun on the sci-fi channel. So I would get up yeah. uh, during the summer at like nine in the morning and watch two or three episodes of it. And that sort of helped inform my knowledge of gothic horror because they adapted all the great gothic horror stories like Turn of the Screw, mm-hmm. um, Frankenstein. You know, Barnabas Collins was one of the main characters and he was a vampire that had yeah. lived for like 200 and some years. Um, that's very much the kind of thing I think of when I'm reading this. And it's, you know, it's different than Strahd, even though it still has some of the same elements to it, because it's much more grounded. Um, it's set in much more of a quote unquote real world. And that's actually something that they talk about in the Guide to Gothic Earth. It's like this is a much more mundane existence than the fantasy world you're probably used to playing in. Sure, there may be elves here or or halflings, but maybe they are um, hiding out in an enclave deep in the Pacific Northwest or something like that. And they just try to avoid humans. Um, there's magic but it's very much an industrial scientific world. So magic is just something that can't be explained uh, or that was lost to time rather than something that's woven into the fabric of society. Yeah. Which uh, I, I actually would, uh, from personal experience um, and my professional opinion on it, it is definitely a much better setting for horror. Like there's a reason that uh, Call of Cthulhu um, tabletop role-playing games exist generally in like that 1800s 1900s realm because it's like when you're in a fantasy setting and you see a werewolf you're like oh no werewolf good thing i have a silvered weapon type of thing Mm -hmm. but if you're in a real life-ish setting you hear about a werewolf like it'd be the same as hearing about a werewolf in real life part part of you is going to be like that's not real and the other part yeah. is like, I really hope that's not real because that sounds like a big problem for me. Well, it's like it's like um, I don't the Walking Dead universe. It's like the Walking Dead universe. Like <laughs> that world exists in you know a place where there was no such thing as zombie stories. Yeah. So like when all that happened, they had to learn like, oh, well, you shoot them in the head or cut their head off, or if you're bitten by a zombie, you turn into a zombie. And that's why they don't even have the word zombie because it just it doesn't exist to them. Yeah. And I think that makes I think that makes storytelling a lot more interesting, because if Walking Dead had just started out with Rick waking up in the hospital and then all of a sudden he's like, shit, zombies, I better I better cut off their heads. Yeah, it'd be it'd be much more um, zombie land. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, this, you know, you talked about the Call of Cthulhu game and there was a version of that game that was out, you know, when this came out, because like I think there's been versions of that game since going back to the through the 80s and stuff. I think we're on the eighth edition or something right now. Yeah. But one of one of my um, this wasn't my reaction to it uh, when I read it initially 20 years ago. But like looking back on this now on this box set, I'm like, was this supposed to be like TSR's answer to the Call of Cthulhu game, um, like sort of horning in on some of their territory. That I mean, I, I would not think that that's a uh, a leap, because um, the the more the more I read of this, even uh, going down to like what the Red Death is in mm-hmm. this setting, like there's a lot of elements, and I've I've always loved the idea of like a lot of horror, like there's there's the tears of impossibility. And so mm-hmm. it's like, you know, oh, uh, you know, a murderer that's pretty possible, but still terrifying. And then a werewolf that's less possible, but m- more terrifying. And then you get up to like vampires and oozes and things like that. You're like, all right, more impossible, more terrifying. Then you get all the way up to like some cosmic thing that 
exists only because it was possibly banished from another dimension, but you only hope that it was banished because what if it's here for a reason and the rest of its species is going to come back and destroy our existence? And it's, and you're like, wow, you went straight for cosmic horror right there and you're sitting in it yeah. and that's terrifying. Well, the thing is the Red Death really just kind of sort of creates the setting for this because it's not like these games aren't set up to be like the party has to go fight the Red Death necessarily. Yeah, these are actually relatively like lower level games. I think they're like I think of the three books that came with it, one was like for levels one to four, one was like five to seven and one was like eight to ten or something like that. But um, the way the way I understand it from reading it is that the Red Death being pulled into our world, like it's supposed to be the embodiment of evil. And it was like Egyptian necromancers and stuff like you know pulled it into our our universe at a certain point in the past and it is sort of responsible for kind of the corruption in the world and that's how things like vampires come about but a lot of the adventures in here are a little bit more closer to the ground i just want to say as we're kind of talking about the introduction of the book when we first started writing adventures i was so concerned about making sure that we weren't putting in too many author's notes and that everything was really clean and et cetera. And I remember Brandon, you being like, no, the pros do that pretty regularly. And if you read enough of these books, you'll see that. And reading through here, I love the author's notes in this adventure set because they're all like, yeah, so this isn't really meant to be part of the Demiplanes of Dread. But that doesn't mean it can't be like, what am I, your mother? Like, you know, go go <laughs> do what you think is the best for your adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, there's stuff like, yeah, there's not really supposed to be a lot of elves and things like you're supposed to be kind of in Earth, but also like magic is here. So, you know, like do what you feel is right for the situation. Like. <laughs> D&D has yeah. always been by nerds for nerds. So I feel like, too. And, you know, obviously I sort of skipped third and th third, three point five and fourth edition. But I feel like this is a period um, in sort of the history of uh, Dungeons and Dragons where it was just starting to sort of transition out of that much more like fun, folksy, like, well, you know, you can imagine friends in a basement creating this stuff. Um, like some of the older um, modules that we've looked at, like um, Barrier Peaks or yeah. uh, that that one with the giant robot. Um, like you get a little for like maybe like five years from this point when like Wizards first acquires TSR. And it just felt to me like everything got a little less fun like that. And that may just be me like like projecting my own feelings. I think on that to it. I think there's something to be said for the fact that it is now a corporate entity that is run mm -hmm. by people who are trying to please their investors. So mm -hmm. it probably has a lot less of that nerds who are friends in a basement making a game together because it no longer is nerds who are friends yeah. in a basement making a game together. Like, yeah. And, you know, make, make no mistake about it. Like TSR was a company that they were running to make money. Yeah. But well, I, th I think there was a lot of still startup passion involved there. I don't I don't think anyone... Uh, thinks that we as goblins and growlers are looking at TSR and going, well, that wasn't a business. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's fair. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's there's a lot of like as uh, Dungeons and Dragons and uh, TSR and those like the, that 
that entity, that brand developed. There certainly was kind of like what Josh was saying earlier about w wanting to have things a little more streamlined. There pro that probably was a goal. And unfortunately, some of those fun little quirky things got lost in that sense of needing to streamline. Yeah, I like them just I like stuff like that just because it's almost like you're having a conversation with the designer. Yeah, you're um, they're like winking and nodding at you the whole time. Like, yeah, I know this is silly, but we've all agreed to suspend our opinion of it being silly and just enjoy it. Yeah, um, I like I like these authors notes in a much a similar fashion as how much I like footnotes in books, mm -hmm. like especially I don't know. If you all have read much in the way of Terry Pratchett, but Terry Pratchett yeah. puts in oodles of footnotes and they're like mm -hmm. they're almost like little optional jokes that he thought was funny, but he was pretty sure his editor wouldn't think was funny enough to keep in the base text. Yeah, like those those little like like side paths are some of the best part about reading Terry Pratchett books. I've read maybe like a dozen Terry Pratchett books, no nowhere near all of them. But that, like, that's something that I love about them because you, you feel you do feel like it's a little secret he's letting you in on. Um, but getting back to this a little bit, it's like, you know, I talked about how it's not really Ravenloft. Like they put the Ravenloft sticker on it. They marketed it as Ravenloft. And I'm sure they did that for two reasons. One, because it's like Raven, like the original Ravenloft Demiplanes of Dread, Domains of Dread situation inspired it. And it's sort of uh, orthogonally connected to it because it's a horror. Yeah. And you might as well try and release something under an existing brand that people know rather than try to make something different. It's it's different enough that it couldn't be its own demiplane, but it's not different enough that they could really feel justified, I think, in spinning it off to a different property. But it's essentially a different game. It is almost a... I'm going to say almost a total conversion. I know there's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram, but when you start changing all the classes and things like that, I feel like yeah. that's a total conversion because you don't have fighters, you have soldiers and the soldiers can't like specialize in favored weapons because it's a lot more just down to earth. Like these, the people, the, the characters that you're playing in this world aren't supposed to be like, heroes or even low level heroes. They're just supposed to be folks. So even if you're a soldier, you probably know how to use several different kinds of weapons, but you're not you might not necessarily be specialized in them. Yeah. Um, there instead of wizards, we have adepts and they don't get any kind of school specialization and their magic is all sort of limited and a lot more low level um, instead of like druids or priests or clerics. We have mystics also with limited magics. And then the weirdest one to me is instead of like rogues and thieves, we have tradesmen um, like they don't. They're kind of like thieves, but they also don't have any kind of thief abilities. Right. And that was even uh, some of the, the, the when this particular uh, game, the, the Mask of the Red Death, Ravenloft, got updated. Um, uh, like they, they, they added and changed around some more classes, but it was still such a departure from classic Dungeons yeah, and Dragons I, classes. I think, are you talking about the, like the later version that came out? Like the, like, I think there was like a 3.5 yeah. version of it. Yeah. yeah. The L living death, uh, campaign yeah, I've, I've never, I've never read that one, but I know, I know what you're talking about. I've read of it. 
so yeah and i mean it, it's it's similar in uh like a, a lot of aspects to try to to carry that the same format forward but uh what like what you were just describing like the other classes in that one are things like cowboy and charlatan and detective and dilettante and it's like yeah these things can fit in fantasy settings kind of but they mostly don't because this is very much like trying to put uh similar to again like 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 call of cthulhu it's like this is a real world this is our real yeah. world just like scarier. Me me mechanically in here because you know we only essentially have four four different classes for this they're really making a lot of use mechanically in this one to differentiate them with like the old character kits the second edition used to do yeah. like oh well you're a rogue do you want to be a swashbuckler do you want to be an assassin that kind of thing and it would help like you know further further modify i mean it's essentially like the same thing now in fifth edition as like bard colleges and stuff like that that just helps further specialize you it's a lot easier to make a subclass than it is to make a whole class and keep things balanced and you know it still has stuff like um uh turning undead for like mystic characters since they're like the cleric analog there's like um they're different a little bit different uses for like uh, or rules for spell use and things like that it's just it's you know it's interesting because it's like a half step away from just renaming something something different and also another half step away from creating something new yeah uh, and, and and i always feel like that's that's a way to quickly fail at something when you're trying to be creative like choosing a midpoint between two things rather than trying to like just go all in on something new but by then they probably would have had to create a whole new rule set and it would have defeated what i think was the purpose of this which was to maybe do a quick release to cash in on a trend right and then they've got whole, like and they have all new like non-weapon proficiencies and things like that like uh they're divided up into different things like you've got mesmerism you've got psychometry um you can be an academician um there is Ooh. let's see journalism um ventrilo let's see ventriloquism is an existing one that you could use how silly and strange i love these mm -hmm. electricity physics um biology botany just reflecting sort of the um you know waking interest in citizen scientists in sort of the dickensian period and things like that it's just again like the more the more i go back and read this the more i'm like i really wish they had just made something new or you know bought call of cthulhu and just had people play that right um but i don't think it's bad i think it's super interesting and you know at a time in the 90s where it was very difficult to break into like to get yourself in front of new audiences that is that weren't already involved in the hobby um like creating a whole new property was probably like the worst possible thing you could do because there's no way to like there was no social media there was no internet to advertise this kind of thing on um we were there like no there Kickstarter were like back then yeah there were like new there were news groups and things like that but they were so very niche like if they wanted to sort of branch out into doing something a little bit different, this was probably the only way they could have done it. Make it different, but familiar enough that you have your existing player base and then they can be the ones to sort of evangelize about it for you. Well, back then, even more so than now, which even now they're really important. Your friendly local game store 
was your hub for information like this. It's a lot easier to send newsletters to places that advertise themselves in the yellow book than it is to, uh, I said the yellow book because I'm thinking of freaking Cthulhu. Uh, I meant the yellow pages, <laughs> but the, um, that yellow book, oh God, the book of the yellow king, yellow yeah, exactly. Um, no, if you, if you're using yellow pages, you can be like, okay, well, this is the address of a game store. These are all like game stores. We'll just send them letters to be like, Hey, we've got this thing coming out. Do you have interest in that? And then the game store then is your advocate for the product itself. Yeah, and then you just have to convince people that it's worth spending the money on this. And I don't know what the market looked like when this was released. Like, what other kind of glut? What was their release schedule like? I actually, honest to God, have no idea what the TSR release schedule looked like back in the day. There were tons of box sets. There were tons of them. But I have no idea when they came out. Like, this would have come out maybe the year after the Forgotten Realms box set, which is probably one of the best box sets you could ever buy. But, you know, there was also the Dark Sun box set. Uh, there was the Ravenloft box set, which I actually have that as well. And it's in a lot worse shape than this box, oh, no. but I think it still has everything. All the bats flying out of it. I'll show it to you guys sometime. It's got like really cool, like three fourths perspectives, maps of uh, giant maps of Strahd's castle and stuff like that. It's Ooh. really it's really cool. It, it would be awesome framed. But um, but yeah, there were all so, you know, I don't know what kind of glut this thing had to cut through. And I keep coming back to this, too, but like that's. That's the one reason that I that's the only reason I can come up with that. They were like, yeah, let's just put the Ravenloft sticker on here. Kind of. It's close enough. It's close enough. Yeah, this this is it our could... brand that's synonymous with horror in fantasy settings. Mm -hmm. I will say they also in the book, um, it's a little further down kind of in the like how you actually are going to run this game section. They talk a little bit about a lot of the stuff that they're going to be referencing and using and things like that are stat blocks they've already created in other mm -hmm. Ravenloft books. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. they're like, look, if you want to use werewolves and vampires and things like that, and they aren't the specific werewolves and vampires that are in this book, go pick up this book or that book or this other book and then use the information in that to flesh out this book. So I think that's part of it as well is it's like, I'm not going to copy all of these stat blocks when I could sell you another book instead. Yeah. And they even say like, hey, if you're going to play this, you need the core rules plus the Ravenloft book. Make sure you have that. Yeah. And like that, there's there, there's a lot of ways that um, like it, it it builds through those like shared mechanics. It it uh, takes like, you know, the, the, the core rules of of what dnd was then um and then uh and this is this has often been you know the, the the trick with horror in a in a in a game like that is finding which ways you can handicap kneecap however you want to say it uh bring down the agency and power level of your players significantly mm -hmm. um so that the horror then sticks everything from like you know reducing the classes to like now you don't really have a ranger. You just have different kinds of fighty dudes type of thing. Yeah, there's you could probably make an argument that soldier would work for that. Somebody who's like experienced and kind of like survival. Exactly. Tracking, but it's like, like that, that. That's the thing. Like you 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 have it distilled down um, all the way to like uh, one, of, one of the things that I loved in this is uh, for the most part, 
you don't just gain spells. Um, your uh, your game master would actually have to, after after like you know, fourth level and so on. Once you're getting into the higher levels as a spellcaster, you actually have to find like scrolls and tomes and things like that and decipher your own spells, which is a much which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and but it's it's much grittier. It's harder. But mm-hmm. it sort of balances how powerful magic users can be, because if you're running around and your fighter fighter class is, you know, able to kick a whole lot of butt, they're much higher level. They're still not doing too great against, you know, a werewolf. But if mm-hmm. only you had that one spell, that'd be amazing. Unfortunately, you don't. So your options are run and run. That could even be like some sort of like plot hook for something like this, because you know that like there's a werewolf terrorizing San Francisco or something like that. So you have to trek to some long lost uh, maybe temple in maybe South America or something like that, where you've heard tell of like an ancient scroll, maybe that was spirited away from the library of Alexandria before it burned and hidden in a temple or a pyramid down there that can like stop the werewolf. And then that becomes like your quest and you have to do it within a couple of months before there are too many more werewolf attacks on the full moon or something like that. By the way, on that note, can I just say how much I appreciate that they take tragedies like the burning of the Library of Alexandria and they're like, what if there was a really good reason for that, though, guys? Yeah. Like, what if that was important in this Mm -hmm. alt history? Yeah. And it's like. I love when people do that because obviously that's a huge tragedy and a massive loss of knowledge for humanity unless. Right, right. A greater good argument. There's also like corruption mechanics in this, and I'm actually not familiar enough with the Cthulhu system to know if that's sort of an analog for it. But I know like I know that like second edition Ravenloft had like um, I think it had fear, horror and madness. That might have been the third edition Domains of Dread book. But you would also like get, I believe, corruption points and stuff, depending on how you behaved. And then you would become like an NPC after a certain point. Yeah. Uh, from from what, what I was reading through this, uh, and this this is uh, similar to uh, Call of Cthulhu, um, being a magic user, while it had these awesome bonuses of being able to use magic, uh, came with a lot of drawbacks, one of which being using magic would leave you vulnerable to corruption. And so like yeah. the more you use magic, the more you're like splitting your mind and twisting your own reality and it can reflect back onto you in horrific ways. Yeah, I um, a couple of years ago played a session in uh, a first edition clone and I was just really surprised to see how things worked because I'd never played back in that system before. But like it was essentially like you don't have spell slots like you have an amount of spells that you should not exceed during a day but you can certainly cast more except but then you have to roll like a like on several different charts because you're essentially pulling at the threads of the universe and the universe is going to get get mad at you because you're tapping into it too much and i think by the end of that one shot my character had um a hole in his stomach uh, that went all the way through his body. One of his legs turned into a tentacle and one of his arms fell off because we were trying to clear out a dungeon of kobolds oh and my. I just kept casting fireball. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's like one of those games where like healing potions and healing spells are super rare. So you have it's it's almost like playing a video game because you are in town. You have to go to the dungeon. Yeah. You route the dungeon until you can't survive anymore. You go back to town, rest up and then go back. It's like Diablo, basically. Yeah. 
hopefully have like a recall potion that'll take you back to town instantly. Yeah, but I, I love I love magic systems that give you a consequence if you want to use magic, because it's like you're you're playing dice with the universe, essentially. And sometimes the universe has anti gambling laws. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> you'll be fined one limb. Yeah, but I want to talk about uh, a couple of the um, adventures that were included in here. Like I said, there's supposed to be three of them. I have two and I don't know where the other one is, but I ate it. Um, the, the first one I've got is Red Tide uh, by Shane Hensley, and it's got this really weird, creepy looking vampire on the front of it. And it's basically a telling of the Dracula story, uh, like or, or almost like a sequel to the Dracula story, because it's set up to where Dracula decided to leave the Balkans uh, and he sailed to the United States because he wanted to like really nurture darkness in the world. And he's like, oh, if I go to the United States, that's a relatively young country. And most of the people there have sort of forgotten the superstition of their ancestors from where their families came from. So they're much more science and industry oriented. So it'll be easier to kind of pull the wool over them. So he sets up a base in San Francisco because it's a port. And that's how he can like send agents out and get information uh, really quickly and sort of become the center of this dark world. And the party has to um, essentially take him down like after like figuring out what he's done and how he operates. But it's it's really cool because it does sort of function as a sequel to Dracula in a certain I love way. That. And the other one I've got is the red is Red Jack, which obviously is about um, like Jack the Ripper. But it tells a very it like tells the story in a very interesting way. It's a, a doctor in England who um, marries uh, a, like an opera singer and turns out she's barren and he he tells her, um, you know, I you know, th this doesn't matter to me. I still love you, even though they wanted kids. So he but it clearly like depressed him. So he threw himself into his work. He set up a clinic in Whitechapel and uh, she became jealous and she became Jack the Ripper to kill all these women that he was taking care of. Uh, and then one night while she was like uh, after she'd finished a killing, she was set upon by an unknown assailant and murdered. So she was cremated. The doctor's uh, sad and depressed. So he moves to the United States and takes her ashes with him and her spirits anchored to the ashes. So then she starts like her spirit starts killing in the United States because of that. Heck yeah. And it's, yeah. And the party has to, you know, take care of that. I love that. There were some adventures that came out in uh, Dungeon Magazine for it, too. One of them is called Jigsaw, which is not about the party waking up in a sealed room with a key <laughs> inserted behind their eye or anything like that. <laughs> but it's a it's a Frankenstein tale where the monster is uh, trying to kill a woman's intended husband because the monster's in love with her. And there's another one called uh, Dark Magic in New Orleans, and it's uh, very voodoo oriented uh, with Marie Laveau. Nice. Uh, and yeah, and I just grabbed those off the Wikipedia page uh, for it. And there's also the Gothic Earth Gazetteer, uh, which is another thing that came out in like 1995, which is more of it's more supplementary for this. Like you get that and it's got like timelines of when stuff happened in history and plot ideas and um, background adventure ideas, information on people, events, dates like secret societies that existed in the period. Yeah. It's just a much closer look at the timeline to help give you ideas. And I think that that's one of the strongest parts about something like this is like our, our world 
uh, as mundane as it may seem throughout all, all many of our days, um, is built mm -hmm. on a lot of like mystery and mysticism and us trying to find something where there might not be anything. And if you're creating an alternate history setting, like the most fun thing to do with that is like, no, 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 no. It's all real and it's worse than you think. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yes, this is exactly what I want to thank you. <laughs> Give me the Night Vale role-playing game. <laughs> I want I mean, all yeah, the that's horror. basically what you're talking about. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's, that was one of my favorite things when I was reading through this, was just seeing all the ways that it's taking real-life stuff, like uh, like Josh was saying, like the, the you know, burning of Alexandria, the Library of Alexandria specifically. Like, to, to taking that and applying a in-world significance to it so that you can go, hey, I remember learning about that in whatever insert class that I was in that I learned that in. Um, now I can take this l one little note that I learned in real life, apply it to this thing, and what if I change it up a little bit? What if uh, the Egyptians didn't summon the Red Death? What if the Red Death had always been around? Or what if... Yeah, what if the pyramids, they built the pyramids as a way to seal away the Red Death yeah. or something, and now it's escaping or and now, something? Because we're we're dungeon diving and trying to, you know, see what's in the sarcophagus, and that's the curse of the mummy, and mm -hmm. those those kinds of things. I actually really like the, the idea in this that the Red Death is sort of like the divergent point in our histories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where things continue on mostly normal, but like in the shadows, everything's just a little bit different. Uh, I want to talk about the map really quick because um, you guys can see on camera. The listeners can't see it, but I've pulled this giant 18 by 24 map out of the box. <gasps> I see North America. It. Yeah, it's North America. It's really cool because it shows like it shows the, the like the major railways that existed in the world at the time. Nice. Uh, it shows where the Perry expedition went in Greenland. Um, it avoids Antarctica, which I'm guessing is a way to just sort of distinct distinguish itself from the Cthulhu stuff. A little bit yeah and it, since that plays such a big part in it but it's got like routes that explorers took trade routes uh it has you know the world as it was at the time like with the german empire the british indian empire stuff like that colonial africa which is just a, a huge cluster yeah. um, of fighting you know european powers yeah uh, but it's i mean it's really cool it's like this in and of itself is a cool history tool Sort of in the same way that I always tell people, like I, I played a lot of Crusader Kings 2 over the years and I learned more about European history from Crusader Kings 2 than I ever did in actual school. Yeah, yeah, that tracks. But yeah, I mean, it's like it's really neat because you can see what the state of the major railways were, where expeditions went, who was successful, who wasn't, how like colonial, like a snapshot of colonialism in the late 19th century mm -hmm. and what that looked like. And it's fascinating. It's it's fascinating. I mean, that, that has always been like the, the thing that got me through uh, history classes in uh, K-12 and college was like when when they would be listing off facts and all these other things and they come to all these great grand generalizations of like some king's life or something like that. And I'm like, well, I wonder what fit in between those mysteries. Like, wonder what strange things could have happened. Yeah. So. Talking uh, just a little bit more broadly about horror and specifically gothic horror as a genre, like what are some of the things that really appeal to you about it, Gabe? And when you're trying to run adventures in that kind of setting, what's what's your process? 
So when it, uh, specifically when it comes to horror in general, one of the big things that I always try and do is similar to how like this box set, you know, players and game masters would have uh, accessed it and been very excited about the idea is getting like that player buy in when the players are like, no, 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 I want to be scared. Bring bring it on. Um, some of the best horror games that I've run, whether it's gothic horror or uh, body horror, anything like that uh, has come from like the players understanding that people in horror movies or horror stories don't always make good decisions. Like mm -hmm. sometimes you're going to make the rash dumb. Don't go in that room. Right. And they're like, you know what? I think I'm going to go in that room. <laughs> and it's like that. That's a, such a beautiful thing because it allows both of us to go. We know this isn't going to go great. Or, you know, the, 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 the player pushes the, 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 mirror on the medicine cabinet closed type of thing you're like you know you're going to see something in that and whether you do or you don't it's still going to terrify you um mm -hmm. and i think like having something like uh you know the, the ravenloft the uh, mask of the red death um or those kinds of uh settings sort of established uh is integral to getting a good scare or getting that good like feeling of creeping trepidation um, because in normal D and D, especially like fifth fifth edition D and D, um, there's very few monsters that your players aren't going to want to just hit with a stick. And you're like, no, 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 please, please don't. It's much scarier if you don't just try and hit it. <laughs> please, <laughs> if you are a hammer, everything is a nail. Exactly, and it's like it's it's one of those like you can turn the nail into a biting nail and you're like all right well do you you ham you attacked the monster and you know half the party dies and they're like wow that was a consequence <laughs> <laughs> surprise um but that that might not always be as fun for your players uh if they're not as a uh, tomb of annihilation excited to have their characters yeah. die i will say with regard to like oh the spooky thing is there well, I'm going to hit it with a stick. Like my solution for that has always been if the party's not ready to fight it, then they can't. And so in those situations, it's like you swipe your stick through the air. And as you're swinging, you involuntarily blink. And your the the weapon you swung through the air hits nothing. And there's a bit of like a bit of fog clearing from the space. And they're like, well, did it turn into fog or like what? What? And I'm like, you don't know. That's, you know, that's not information you have access to. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the that's one of the things I like about the buildup for the different chapters in Curse of Strahd, how they introduce Strahd relatively early just to give players the idea that like this guy's bad news and you really shouldn't screw around with him. Like you're going to die if you just try to hit him with a stick right now. Yeah. And that like that that kind of uh, again, that, that 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 is very like gothic horror, gothic romantic horror, because it's, you know, you're you're showcasing your big, bad, sexy villain, which doesn't necessarily have to be actually sexy. I just sometimes use that word to mean impressive. Um, mm -hmm. Big, bad villain. Uh, like you, you, you can showcase it like uh, it is quite terrifying to fight a werewolf but it's even more terrifying to see like a village that was completely like destroyed 
by a werewolf attack type of type of thing and have that like slow mm-hmm. build up understanding those horror elements which come from a sense of like very uh romantic gothic style writing mm-hmm. um yeah if you hit first with aftermath before yeah you like actually run into the cause of it you can build up that atmosphere and sort of make your game just like so thick with worry and everything or everybody thick. like everybody almost falls into the uh into the same sort of habit as the the person who plays a thief or something and they take like every five steps they're like i search for traps i search for traps i search for traps i search for traps which is like really annoying but then the traps like, start some searching ways, for you Ooh. <laughs> In some ways, that's nice, though, because it shows that you've sort of created an atmosphere of uncertainty, Mm -hmm. which is what you want. Um, You know, you need to be a little bit more delicate and subtle about it if you're trying to run a horror story, I think. Um, Rather than just having a bunch of uh, like if you're in a dungeon and just having a bunch of those giant balls that chased Indiana Jones just show up like every 10 minutes or something. Yes. At which point the party starts to just find a way to circumvent giant balls. Gabe, how do you um, like what's your process for like building your atmosphere when you're when you're running a game? Not like not like session zero prep stuff or anything like that, but like as you're sort of getting rolling on maybe the first couple sessions and you're trying to like build things up to a crescendo where the party really realizes that they're in trouble and there's something here that's bigger. Uh, than um, them. I definitely like to uh similar to what, what what we were talking about like uh, establish the setting as something that uh like the the player characters can be familiar with something mm-hmm. whether it's a town that like they just recognize towns in this area or if it's just like a like a, a place that they as people in that world diegetically like actually know um like oh this is the town i grew up in or this is uh, you know, these are the forests near my homeland. I know something about it. Give them something that anchors them to the area because then that mm-hmm. gives them that sense of familiarity that you can then play with. Because um, like exploring a, you know, a, a, a forest you've never been to uh, or, or actually more dramatically, if I were to explore a jungle, a proper jungle, uh, I personally have never been to a jungle. So I would be on edge and incredibly aware as often as possible. But if I'm just in a forest, I've been to tons of forests. I've been to forests in the mountains. So if I'm in a forest on the wrong side of a mountain type of thing, and I don't know to look out for a not a deer, like, and suddenly I see something that looks like a deer, but it's not a deer. Like that allows it to be like, I'm, I'm slowly creating that juxtaposition, that feeling of dread, that, slowly Mm -hmm. twist something away and it's like you're comfortable but then you're not this is your hometown but but you know it's been you've it's been a couple years since you've been here and a couple people that you remember really well are acting really weird yeah i think that's a strength of the gothic earth setting that you find here and also in stuff like other sort of like quote unquote grounded role playing games like Call of Cthulhu and stuff like that, because you it comes with that built in sense of familiarity. Um, And especially if you like read any of the Cthulhu mythos stuff like uh, it, it just takes that and in like one paragraph, it can sort of shatter your familiar image of the world, because like even if I even if you've never been to a jungle 
or you've uh, never been to like Eastern Europe or something like yeah. that, you have a general idea of what it's like. And you know that like the laws of physics are supposed to apply right. the same way there as they do here. But um, then you're walking through so the jungle you, and there's an area where the water is dripping upwards and you're like, I didn't read about that in science class. Uh, yeah. Excuse I, me. I, I think that's just I think that creates a weakness for any kind of quote unquote spooky setting that's that's set in some sort of otherworldly realm mm -hmm. um just because there's no frame of reference for what you should be terrified of yeah like that's why uh things like the Feywild work because it's like it's it's a, a place of anything can happen but it's all grounded in stuff that looks familiar like you see grass mm -hmm. but suddenly that grass is as sharp as like razor wire type of thing like everything mm -hmm. is supposed to give you that here's the setup and then poof it's something totally different but if you're in like a domain of dread that's you know the the walls and floor and everything is made out of like really pink bloody skin and you're walking around and everything like squishes as you walk on it type of thing and there's like blood clouds in the mm -hmm. sky you're like well this is a bad time for sure <laughs> I'm not having a good time here, but uh, like I don't know what to expect at all. So I'm going to expect anything. And it kind of puts the players in that 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 headspace of I need to check for traps all the time already, as opposed to giving them that opportunity to uh, slowly discover that something's wrong. Um, another thing that I do uh, and this uh, sometimes it really works super well, sometimes not as much. Um, is uh create like little false scares like if you watch a lot of horror movies there's the little like mini scares that'll happen that slowly lead up to the actual scare like you know the the person's moving a book and there's a giant spider that literally has nothing to do with the plot there's spiders aren't even a thing in this movie but there's a spider and the person goes oh god spider oh no it has legs or whatever scares people about spiders um like that there's that moment of terror and like you can fit those in uh there's a game that i was running where um the players were uh exploring a uh, a disappearance and one of the places they were investigating was a uh a a, a mill house um next like a, a water mill house uh that was all run down and as they were going in there and they were walking one of the players says like he you know he's he's tired he leans up against one of the posts and starts pulling out tobacco to stick into his pipe to smoke and i was like oh perfect as you lean on that post i need you to make a dexterity save and they're like well why and it's like they lean on the post and the post breaks slightly to the side and then one of the support beams from the ceiling curves down and almost decapitates them oh, wow. and it's one of those where it's like immediately everyone's like that could have been in a deadly situation that was super mundane probably has nothing to do with the adventure but it's starting to like knock them off balance and get them off balance so that they start making more rash decisions that type of thing i love stuff like that i wrote an adventure at one point that was set in a fen and part of the kind of build up of the spookiness of the atmosphere i was like well it's very foggy and it's hard to see um, and then I was like, you see just at the edge of the visible parts of the fog. So you don't have full visibility on it, but there is a shape. It is tall and it is moving. And they're like, no, absolutely not. Do not want. And what I had it be was that some kinds of fen, when you walk through them, 
your walking disturbs the earth because the earth is just a layer of film yeah. on top of water. And there was a tree in the distance. And that's all it was. There's a tree, tree kind of wobbling, kind of weeble wobbling because they were walking along. And so they checked it out because it, it didn't come any closer. It didn't get any farther, but it was moving. And they were like, oh, thank God it was just a tree. And I got them a few times with things like that. And just like building that tension yeah. is so important to having a good spooky adventure. Have you guys ever seen the video of the breathing tree? Yes. Yeah, Gabe, you know what I'm yes, talking about. It's I don't so know weird. that I have. It's this tree in a forest. It's this old gnarled tree. And if you look at it, it almost looks like it's like respirating because the ground will go up like you take an air into your lungs and then it'll go back down like the air is coming out. Basically what it is, it's sort of a layer of intertwined um, roots, moss, yeah, dirt and everything so that's created kind of like a film. And when the wind, like the wind has certain ways to blow into cavities underneath it. And so when it blows in, it goes up, it hits sort of a tension point, and then it comes back down and pushes all of it out. And it sounds like it's breathing too. It's really creepy. Like I've seen a video of it like t shot during the day, but I imagine if like you had, use, if you use that as something in a story and you had the party come upon it, like in the middle of yeah. the forest, in the middle of the night on a full moon or something like that, that could be really creepy. Yeah. And I get, especially if you have a druid who's like, well, I'm not detecting anything like weird about the nature or around here or anything like that. You like they detect magic. They're not detecting any magic like that. Just like that's a mundane thing that could just terrify somebody. Yeah. Take that. Take that. That essence of like canny and uncanny and play with them a lot. Gabe, do you use anything like uh, music or lighting when you're doing uh, either in person or online? So games? I, I for sure have um, it. Uh, I, I did run a game one time uh, at uh, a summer camp that I work at. It was it was just for like uh, my, my co-workers and counselors, uh, co-counselors. Um, I wasn't I wasn't intentionally scaring kids. No, uh, I, I, I try to not do that. Um, but uh, it, it was it was a, a creepy horror game. And I had set up like the tables in like a V shape so that I was sort of in the middle um, and had my players all around me. But I also had uh like these purple lights that i have glowing behind me i had them sort of set up and i had one of those uh those those fire lights that you can buy at uh, uh spirit halloween that sort of project a swirling miasma of color on the wall and i had that playing out off of the uh the window behind me so it would reflect on the trees in the distance um and i had a smoke machine that was just poof smoke every now and then it was so good too because the smoke machine would come on at random intervals when it uh, produced enough um of its smoke uh and so you would suddenly hear just the pss, 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 pss sound and like it would it would all it would totally be at random intervals and then i had a big speaker and i was playing just some very creepy very atmospheric music that has random crescendos that will rise and fall. Um, and if you listen to this music, even just like, if you're gonna do that, I'd recommend just listen to it once and your brain will subconsciously remember some of those crescendos so that when you're going through it again, you can lean into that moment. You're like, oh, I remember this bit. It's gonna get really creepy in a moment. So I'm just gonna lean into the table and say something very strange and uncomfortable. Even if I'm just describing like, you know, a tree it's like now all of a sudden you notice as the as you look closer at the tree, 
there's something wrong with the bark. You're you're not sure what it is, but the the longer you look at it, it looks like the bark is is moving. It's 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 bending. It's breathing almost. And like the music's crescendoing, and then suddenly the the smoke machine turns on. Everybody jumps at the table. And you're like, ha, gotcha. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely scene setting. Uh, candles, dim lighting. You know, those are those are great things as long as your players are able to see their character sheets. Gabe, if you had to give us maybe five bullet points for um, like some easy things you could do to run a successful horror type game, what would they be? Uh, five, five bullet points. Well, one thing, definitely, uh, and I, I said this before and I will say it every time. Uh, let your players know that it's OK to be afraid in the game. Like, don't try to be the bravest of the brave boys ever feel free to let your character get scared like that is super important because uh that bleed which is a a a, a concept that like a lot of uh role-playing games uh function with where the emotions of you will bleed into your character your character will bleed back into you if you allow your character to get scared you will get more scared and it's a awesome feeling because it's uh it, it, it can it as long as you're doing it in a healthy way uh it's like going to a haunted house at an amusing park like it's it's a safe scared um so definitely that's one big big bullet point is uh make sure that your players know that their characters can get scared um and encourage it even um i would say another thing is if you have the ability to set the scene uh tangibly around you do it uh spooky atmospheric music goes a long way have it just play in the background have like five or six different tracks that you want to cycle through um one at least one high energy one and the rest of them can just be spooky type of thing um that's it's 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 very important and it's uh it it changes more than you think it will um you don't have to give us five bullet points. I'm trying to think of at least like one more. Uh, definitely, and so so this this is something I've I've, I've done a lot as well. Uh, make sure that as you are setting your scenes and uh, like giving that the the whatever long descriptions you have, if you want to create a sense of like uh, you know you're you're dealing with werewolves or you're dealing with whatever the monster is or whatever the setting is take some notes of very specific elements that you want to have reoccur and just write those down. Like uh, if those elements are like, you know, uh, occasionally there are eyes carved into the bark of trees type of thing. Like just remember to come back to that over and over because then. Chekhov's gun. Yeah. Like it, it'll, it'll eventually yeah. pay off and it'll, it'll get creepier the longer it goes. Cause if they're exploring a forest at the edge of a village and there's an eye carved on a tree, but then later on, after, you know, having been chased through the woods by a monster and, uh, resting at some old hag's house type of thing, um, I do mean the monster hag, not, I'm not saying a, a mean, old, like, yeah, anyways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not Baba yeah, Yaga. Uh, but like like actually like you know being at what they think is a safe spot then looking outside and seeing tons of eyes carved on trees like that's a great way to create like that 
you're you're calling back to something that they understood to be strange and you're like yes you're absolutely right it is strange you got it now be terrified type of thing um that's actually a, a, a tip that i give i would give to all dms write down small little textural notes that you can come back to josh do you have anything you want to throw in on that i was just gonna say i particularly enjoy when you have a scene where like they think they're safe and then there's like the flash of lightning and there's eyes all over all the trees mm. and then one of them is like well i'm gonna go investigate because like we need to know more about like what these eyes on trees are about and then they go out and there's nothing there like those are some of like my absolute favorite moments not only in scary movies but especially in scary ttrpg scenarios yeah, the false scare well, where it's like, where, did you actually see those? Was that a hallucination? Yeah. Was that like what what occurred there? Was that the truth? And what you're seeing now is the hallucination? Like, ooh. if you can if you can get some good role players at your table, like that that are uh, happy to lean into, uh, not the meta ness of it, like you can very quickly create like that feeling of uh you know maybe one of the characters at the table actually is going crazy and the party starts to distrust them even though they're the only one that can see the monster type of thing um and that again that 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 comes from that like little bit of buy-in um get your get your players excited to do dumb things uh <laughs> like that's 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 really where a lot of horror comes from if they're being super careful and they're using they're, they're they're very carefully using their uh you know de detect good and evil like they're and they're sparing it out and they're doing detect magic everything so every time something seems strange like they're playing very smart which isn't bad but it's more safe and you want them yeah. to scared scared people often do not play smart. yes that at least one person's going to sprint off in the distance knowing that they know the right way to go and now they're lost and the rest of the party has to find them before they get consumed um well and and in those situations keep in mind how horror movies handle like the lone person runs off on their own they find things yeah that no one else was going to find because they happen to stumble across it while running through the woods at high speeds like that's precisely how you get your players to lean into that atmosphere is by rewarding them with more information on what they're doing or a better idea of what the monster is like or, you know, any of those sorts of things, those little rewards you give your characters for normally accomplishing very difficult tasks in a horror setting. You want to give it to them for acting in ways that expand the horror. Yes. Fortune favors the foolish. It really do, man. In horror. Yeah. I want to mention one thing before we uh, sign off, because I think we're winding down a little bit. But while we were talking, I did check and Wizards actually does sell on DriveThruRPG the uh, Mask of the Red Death and other tales. Heck yeah. Uh, they sell it as a PDF, a standard softcover book and a PDF plus the standard softcover book. Obviously, it originally came in a box set, so you can't buy it in the box, but they'll send you a book that has everything in it. And right now, uh, because of uh, spooky season, uh, they're saying from now through October 31st, the um, digital title has been uh, marked down by like 30%. So normal, like the PDF normal price is $9.99. It's $6.99 right now. The PDF plus book is usually, I think, nice. 30 something. And it's now like 22 40 
So get on there and check it out. And I'll also throw this in there, which we sort of alluded to, but Wizards is actually being like super explicit about it um, for like a content warning on this, because uh, much, much sort of in the same way that Roma were treated in uh, early Ravenloft. I say early Ravenloft, but Ravenloft up to last yeah. year. Yeah. Um, so most of Ravenloft, like we talked a little bit about colonialism while we were talking about this. So, you know, that's definitely a factor here. So just keep that in mind and don't be surprised when you're reading it. It's, you know, it is dated. It is a reflection of the world as it was at that time, for the most part, like historically. Um, but, you know, that's like and, know that historically, but it's like wrong. And just like with with many uh, uh, adventure modules and things like that, um, take the parts that you really enjoy. You don't need to play the entire thing as it's written. Um, mm -hmm. especially if it's racist and dumb yeah <laughs> kick that part to the yeah, curb absolutely. and take the fun part with the vampires and the red mist gabe uh, where can people find you uh people can find me uh on the discord uh bit.ly forward slash goblin discord um the gobs of Growls discord specifically uh and also on instagram at amethyst audiomancer one word uh and I, we didn't call this out at the top but you know for those who don't know Gabe is also the uh, very talented and accomplished uh, audio engineer for our sister podcast, Quid Pro Roll. Uh, so anytime you listen to and enjoy that, you are uh, uh, soaking in the fruits of his labor. Soak in my fruits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, everybody, for tuning into our spooky uh, sort of kind of uh, episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. Happy Halloween, everybody. Check out Mask of the Red Death on DriveThruRPG. You know, give Wizards maybe seven bucks. It's worth it's worth giving it to them just to check this out because it's it's really fun and it might give you some ideas to incorporate into some of the stuff you're writing, especially from like a more grounded horror aspect. But uh, I'm uh, Brandon at Way of Brandalore on Twitter, and I'm Josh at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. Uh, thanks everybody for listening, and we'll be back next week uh, on a regular cycle episode. Thanks. Bye, y'all. Boo. Goodbye.